This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. This is Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show, and I'm excited for this conversation for so many reasons. Many of you know I really, really believe that our, our solution to the climate crisis is using culture and using those who are using art and those who understand the importance of using one's uh, creative expression to shape one's political experience. And so in that, I came across and actually I'm a part of now, but came across an amazing, amazing uh, film. And I have both the directors here and the executive director here with me. And I'm so glad to have them so we can have this conversation. One, the great thing about this is that they are from Detroit. So I love that because it's like, you know, every and for folks who don't know, these are from my lighter hue. Uh, listeners, uh, we, we, we say sometimes Detroit versus everyone. And if you understand folks from Detroit, they really mean that. I mean, that's, that ain't no, that ain't no slogan. That ain't no saying for them. They, they really, really mean Detroit versus everyone. So if anyone, I think, is going to help us to solve this climate crisis, I wouldn't be surprised actually if it's some folks from Detroit figured this thing out. So with that, I actually have with me uh, the amazing, she would introduce herself, but she's the amazing, just prolific, phenomenal dream ham. Dream, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having us, Rev. Yeah. And yes, I, I do. I do represent Detroit all day. There it my is. My favorite, one of my favorite moments from this Richard Pryor skit, <laughs> um, he he's like, he talked about being on some all night bender and you wake up and he's like, how, where am I and how do I get to Detroit? <laughs> That's like my, it's an orientation for black folks. Um, but yes. And I also have um, one of the filmmakers who's a part of this video series, which is called Swollen. Um, and this is Desmond Love from Detroit. Desmond. Hey, what's up? What's up, people? Desmond, can I just say that I just love your name, Love? Can I just say that off the top? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> A lot of people don't believe it's real. Right. He had it. It was before Diddy. It was before, 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 yeah. before <laughs> no, actually, I had a I had a good friend, and I had I had I actually I knew some loves actually, but I'm just actually excited to have you with me in this conversation. Dream, I'm actually going to start with you because I want to actually get into just what is swollen. You kind of actually took, mm -hmm. start off with that. So for folks who don't know what is swollen, uh, yeah. what is swollen? What's the concept? Give us a little bit of background on that. Yes. Um, well, I can, since Desmond is here, I can tell you that this actually began as a smaller, more personal film called Freshwater um, that I was making about my old neighborhood that often finds itself underwater. 
um, that was a poem of the film. It was meant to be like portraiture and a little bit impressionistic. And, and Desmond um, did some shooting on that. And while we were in my old neighborhood, which at the time was Desmond's current neighborhood, um, I got to see all of the, I know that resilience is a complicated word, but I, I got to see all the practices, the kind of resilience practices that people were attempting as they were fighting back the flooding that was happening increasingly almost every season. Um, and that included all kinds of Jerry Rig situations that Desmond can get into what was used to be in his old neighborhood. But they were basically bailing themselves out of this kind of seasonal um, thing that was recurring, that was creating a lot of damage. Um, I had just come off of making three pretty didactic projects. And by didactic, I mean didactic. I don't mean to insult anyone who's listening to this. Of course, y'all know what that means, but literal. You know, I had made Surviving R. Kelly, which was quite literal. I had made uh, a film, a show on BET, a six-part series called Finding Justice that was also quite literal. And I had done um, a project that we shot inside of a men's prison in Indiana um, called It's a Hard Truth Ain't It. It was on HBO and it was also quite literal. And so Freshwater was a way of me for me to heal from that. But even as I was trying to do this like healing poem of a film, I saw that there was a need to do another kind of literal docuseries on basically the Great Lakes. Um, so when we talk about flooding, we often are talking about coastal areas um, and the Great Lakes um, and cities around the Great Lakes, which are often black cities. And we focused on three of those cities, Cleveland, Milwaukee, and Detroit. Um, Detroit is being uh is, is experiencing flooding for a number of reasons, but we sit on Lake Huron. Uh, Milwaukee um, sits on Lake Michigan and Cleveland sits on Lake Erie. So you have at once what the greatest, the biggest depository of fresh water in the world. Um, and we are dealing with rising water levels that are compromising um, infrastructure um, and, and the folks in those communities are left to try to, um, you know, fight back. So we want to deliver a fuller picture of the relationship between race and climate change and raise critical questions related um, to what is to be expected with the coming floods. Uh, Last thing I'll say is that what we did was, um, and as as an executive producer, I, um, you know, got raised some money and basically re-granted folks, you know? So, paid filmmakers um, who were local to the areas um, to create their own projects with very little kind of like feedback from myself. Um, And we found those filmmakers outside of Desmond, who I knew, we found those filmmakers through dealing with um, climate, racial justice, climate orgs in the, in the local areas. Um, So in Milwaukee, um, that meant, you know, dealing uh, with people like Brenda Coley, who's the executive director of the Milwaukee Water Commons um, in Cleveland. You know, that meant dealing with another um, organization, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. And they connected us. I was like, who does video for y'all? Like, who be shooting for y'all when you want to tell some of your stories? I want to give them some money to produce a, a film to be part of this series. So that's how it happened. That's beautiful. Well, we actually, speaking of Brenda Coley. Oh, there she is. She's joined us. <laughs> so hi, Brenda. Welcome to The Coolest Show. Hello, Rev. 
it's really so nice to have him. I'm having this amazing conversation here with Green Hampton and Desmond Love. So really glad you can be with us. I'm actually want to start with you, Brenda. For folks who don't know you, uh, who is Brenda Coley and who is your community? Oh, that's a that's a big question. Um, I would say probably from the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I seemed to have this propensity for people who were different from me. So I lived in an all black city in Gary, Indiana. That's where I was raised here on the Great Lake Michigan, um, which I am Lake Michigan. Um, and um and so seeing people different or trying, so I've spent my life, I always say, explaining um, gay people to straight people, explaining black people to white people, explaining, explaining men to women, talking about transgender issues, the climate, the environment. That's, I'm always in those, those areas thinking intersectional, intersectional and with the social justice lens. Brenda Coley is a natural born um, social justice activist. I've spent most of my life from my early years, from 11 and 12 years old, um, speaking, um, explaining, describing different communities to each other. So uh, to white people, describing black people, to LGBT people, describing straight people to, to them and vice versa, men to women, women to to men, that kind of thing. So I've always been interested in community. I say my community is, I consider myself an internationalist. So I see my community as a, as across the globe. Um, but I'm located here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I intersect mostly um, in the African-American community and in the LGBT community as well. That's amazing. Thank you. Desmond, same question for you, actually. I want to just give you that same, the same thing. Who is Desmond Love and who is your community? I'm a filmmaker, used to be a photographer. So I'm a director and a director of photography. So I really just do creative things inside of media as much as I can. Um, that's really the only thing I do. I don't, I don't go out and do nothing. I just create. Like, if I'm outside, I have a camera in my hand. And beyond that, I'm at home. That's it. <laughs> I'm pretty boring. Like, I, I don't do much. Besides travel. No, no. I travel a lot. <laughs> I've been to, like, uh, 12 countries so far. So if I leave the house, I'm going to a different country. <laughs> So you go like Drake from Drake from Detroit to Ghana. That's the thing. You don't even like you don't yeah. even stop. You don't even like stop. You know, stop at the coffee shop. I like, want to Ghana. 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 You said Ghana because Ghana is one of his spots. Yeah, Ghana is actually one of his spots. That's so funny. You just pulled that one out. <laughs> well, Dream, I want to ask you the same question because I actually I, I I think I know you. I've been around you for a while, but. Dreamhampton's deeply private and um, committed, you know, to finding some justice in this world. Um, and I've been that way, you know. Um, I first got activated um, as an organizer when I saw um, Don Cornelius talking to Stevie Wonder on Soul Train one Saturday morning. I was in my pajamas. And I'm sure that um, Stevie Wonder had been pulled aside by someone like Harry Belafonte who himself had been pulled aside by Winnie Mandela and other um, women of the um, movement in South Africa who had decided to begin um, a boycott 
um, uh, uh, you know, divestment um, and sanction campaign against the apartheid government of South Africa. And um, Stevie Wonder was talking about um, companies. I remember I was in the fourth grade, I think, nine years old. And he was talking about companies that um, wouldn't divest from apartheid South Africa and Shell was one of them. And there was a Shell near my house on Chalmers and Harper. And I I remember I had a science project and I turned it over um, the board, the white poster board. And I put, you know, boycott Shell free South Africa on it and went outside in the middle of the winter with my little sign. (laughs) I didn't know that the poor little Arab guy who owned that Shell had nothing (laughs) that it was like franchises. You know what I mean? But people were like stopping and talking to me. And I was like, Stevie Wonder said, you know. (laughs) So in that story, I guess there is actually... This idea that artists can um, be one part if they're not the entire story, and sometimes that you know gets um, in, in our organized and we mess that up. They're absolutely not the entire story, but they can be a tool in terms of getting out a larger message. Um, and and Winnie and and the women um, who were supporting the ANC at that time understood that, and they pulled aside someone like Harry Belafonte, and then he went and he got Stevie to to say something important when Don Cornelius came at him with that that little long skinny microphone <laughs> and asked him um, whatever he wanted to ask him that day, um, and that started me on my journey around social justice, and um, it was an international. Um, you know, movement, and and I, I remain the same to this day. Well, imagery is powerful, Dre. Thank you for that. And I, I mean, that's something that I believe is what starts our story. I want to thank you all for for this for this story, um, for putting together Swollen. And I hope that after people listen to it, they are again intrigued to not only see this work but to, to support this work. I will tell you personally, and as I think some of you may or may not know, I am originally from Louisiana. That is that is my community. And one of the things um, that keeps me going actually is the fact of Hurricane Katrina and doing this work um, and dealing with that flood that happened to New Orleans. And so for me, listening to the stories of those who were impacted, particularly my, my community, black, brown, young people, um, just folks from the Gulf, uh, drowning, uh, really impact me. So to hear about this, honestly, I actually, when Dream First actually came to me, I didn't even know actually that there was, there was this much flooding. Actually, I didn't, that just, you know, this, this actually kind of, when I first listened, I was like, you know, I think it was, is it snow? I mean, I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I was like, and then she went into it. Yeah, no, she got, she went into it. No, but Rev, we should let Brenda talk about that because I remember getting on the phone with her um, because she was, you know, recommended to me. um, And I was asking, I I said something about, um, I don't know what I said, but. Brenda has such a good answer about, you know, basically what's been happening to our cities and the mm. degreening of these spaces um, and how vulnerable they are because of so-called development. So, um, Brenda, do you mind talking a bit about, you know, why there is flooding in Milwaukee yeah. and um, yeah, what's happening with well, Lake Michigan? I, I think I first want to start with um, rising lake levels or lake levels um, descending is natural. 
it's really the way that the lake uh, takes care of itself. So that's a natural process that's happening, but it's in overdrive now because of the frequent um, rain events that we have. And also because the climate is uh, the, the, um, the, um, not climate, the globe is getting warmer and all of this. Um, um, and a lot of that is, is human um, made, mankind made. But so the flooding, the interesting thing about climate resilience and flooding. So we have a a stormwater um, system that can only really take in uh, so much water because what we don't want to happen is for the floodgates to open and the water goes back to the lake untreated. So we wanted to go through the system that will treat the water, clean the water before we dump it back in. But, there, but when we have these huge rain events, we have no choice but to open up the floodgates, open up the tunnel, deep tunnel, we call it, and let the water out because we don't want so much basement backup and flooding. So what does that do, that flooding that's happening in, um, in areas that black and brown people mostly live in uh, because of this old housing structure? It, can't, it doesn't have the infrastructure to handle this, is that you have to recover from this over and over and over again. It's not a one-time event. So I might can afford that my, my furniture got wet in uh, one time, but if it happens with again in two months and again in three months, then that becomes a problem. Also, it is uh, toxic, mm. you know, to to have that uh, rainwater um, coming up through sometimes through the the system. So that's why. But but I think you know, in terms of looking at climate resilience, we really should be looking at the people who are who are resilient in the first place and who have uh, survived. Um, 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 being disadvantaged and being oppressed. How? Did, what systems, what things have they put in place in order to be resilient? That's who we should be looking at. We should be talking to uh, indigenous folks in this country, um, across the country. How, how did they um, steward the, the planet before, before all this happened? And what can they do? Because there were problems to, there were things to manage before, always, always. So, Brenda, I have a follow up to what you just said. I think it's, and you mentioned this earlier about the, about the movement to get around environmental justice and being intersectional. You know, I've been in each one of these cities actually for an uprising. I've been in Cleveland um, for an uprising. I've been in Detroit for an uprising. I've been in Milwaukee for an uprising. And then you're now talking about swollen and about how there's a connection, how the waters are rising as well. Um, from an environmental justice uh, situation, do you see a uh, do you see a direct correlation? Do you see that climate justice is racial justice, and racial justice is climate justice? Do you see that? And in, 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 as you are looking in your work in Milwaukee and just throughout your your lens, well, you know the the, the environmental movement um, when I came into it about five years ago, five or six years ago. Um, it was really a movement of uh, white uh, middle class um, people, especially older people who had the, the time to put to put into it. And but they but it was not the environmental movement is not was not sustainable in that way. If they were going to I mean, the politicians knew there was no there there behind it, meaning that the keep the people weren't really informed. So the environmental justice knew that it was it had to have a social justice leaning. 
And when we're talking about intersectionality, we're talking about black feminism. That's what they bring to the table, seeing that all these issues are interconnected. So the environmental movement, Milwaukee Water Commons is unabashedly um, 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 deals with, lives with, uh, speaks on uh, intersectionality and credits black feminism for that perspective. So um, it's people and planet. The same systems that oppress people are the same systems that oppress our planet as well. And when we get that together, you know, and, be, and, and become to realize that we are are, are uh, responsible to steward, especially our water. And that means that we have to take responsibility for it as well. So we can't, we get to enjoy it. Everybody should have the benefit. I'm talking too much. Yes. No, you're not. Keep no, going. No, 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 no. I was ready. I was ready to go get my t-shirt, a uh, Milwaukee brush, everyone. I was ready to. <laughs> no, keep, keep. No, that's, that's, that, that's. I had, that's, a, I had a follow-up question for yeah. Brenda. Rev. Um, yeah. So, and thank you for bringing in um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw's, um, you know, ethos and ethic around yeah. intersectionality and naming that as a black feminist principle. I also love citation as a black feminist principle. Um, one of the things that we were, the filmmakers um, that we worked with in Milwaukee were able to, you know, talk about was, um, an explanation of the solutions that range from federal in- infrastructure funding to methods of water capture, like rain barrels, planted trees, and native plants, um, and depaving, which is, I remember that coming up in our first conversation. And when I think about the root, Rev and I are both in LA, we're not in the same space right now. But I, when I think of like cities like Los Angeles, who mm-hmm. basically not just depaved, but deforested the actual city, like went into neighborhoods like Inglewood and in um, South LA, people call it South Central, but South LA and, and literally uprooted trees so that they could have these helicopters. In some instances, they actually painted numbers on residents' roofs. You know, they had uh-huh. no choice. Um, they had budgets for helicopters. In Detroit, we didn't have budget for those kind of uh, the ghetto birds, as Ice Cube used to say, that used to nightly patrol the neighborhoods here in Los Angeles. Um, but that kind of same deforestation of our cities happened, you know? Um and that history, and I know that doesn't go back as far as like the the indigenous folks who originally had this land to begin with and their practices. And thank you for bringing that into the conversation. But even to go back a couple of generations and to look at these policies that cities had in place that have been so consequential. Did Milwaukee have anything like that happen in the 80s um, when this whole tough on crime movement was happening and folks were def- I mean, uh, putting all their city budgets into hmm. the police departments and this consequence of like tearing down trees so you can better police residents. Did that happen in Milwaukee also? I think a couple of things happened in Milwaukee. First of all, in the 60s and 70s, during white flight, you know, um, from the city, Milwaukee residents helped to build the infrastructure that made it possible for white flight to happen. And then on top of that, they redlined. So white people could move out there, but people of color could not. So so we, we're dealing with old aging infrastructure, 70,000 lead laterals that are poisoning our children and our pregnant mothers, right? They're at risk for that. And the suburbs are turning their back. They don't want to help when we were the ones that, that, that made it possible for them to um, 
to, to exist. You know, second of all, is um, the freeway structure that they put in the city of Milwaukee tore up the black community. We had a thriving, as is was known across the country, we had a thriving um, small business um, community. And when that expressway came in, um, it broke that up. They, they tried to put it in another neighborhood, as often happens. They tried to put it in a neighborhood that was... Um, um, predominantly Italian, but the, the folks in that community stood up and black people didn't have the power that that other community had. So that expressway went through. So what does that do? That tears up community and it tears up the planet. You know, they don't have the water has nowhere to go. And we, and so for example, one of our projects is we just got a grant to really plant 350 trees in one community. And we're not talking about what we use, what we call in the environmental sector whips. We're talking about huge trees that can, um, can, um, can, can really drain that water. But the interesting thing, the way that we do it is we have community engagement and make and maintenance. It makes no sense to tell people that they need to plant a tree when the tree they got in their yard is on their roof or it's sticking out of the garage, right? And so traditional environmentalists never thought about maintenance. They only thought about planting these whips by volunteers from Northwestern Mutual or something like that, and what lived would live. And that, that's not a bad strategy when we're talking about riparian areas near um, rivers and lakes, but it's not how you plant trees in an urban setting. So, and we know that you, in Milwaukee, that you can look at a zip code and see and figure out how many trees are going to be in that zip code. So for, for um, heat canopies, trees help, um, stormwater um, retention, trees help, beauty, you know, mental illness, mental health. I mean, uh, all of this is, 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 is in a tree. Hmm. I love that. No, I love that Especially too. the piece about mental health. Yeah. Because Rev, yeah. you just came back from, Rev was just in COP in Egypt. And mm-hmm. um, and there were so many youth there who were advocating to have that mental health piece be a part of any conversation that we mm-hmm. have around climate injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, They're all connected. And, yeah, it's all, it's definitely all connected. And for you, Desmond, two questions. Just talk about the flooding in Detroit. You know, what does it look like when it floods Detroit? And then kind of maybe give folks a little bit of the nuts and bolts of like when you're filming this project, like what what, do you, what, what does your crew look like? You know, you know, how you know how did you approach this? Those kind of things. Are, I mean, because I, I'm telling you, for folks who are going to watch it, this is beautiful. And this is actually a very, it's actually very sad. It's, well, on one hand, it's a, you know, it's a very, it's a, in other words, it's, it's very poetic, but let me let you explain that. So what does flooding look like in, in the D and All right. talk about your filming process. So I'm going to start this off by saying, um, I just left, um, Vietnam like a month ago mm. and I just saw having to be there for a typhoon. And it was a level five typhoon. So it was like 180 kilometers an hour wind. I was right on the water. It was crazy. It was the roughest sleep I ever had, like through the night. Mm. But when I woke up in the morning, everybody was outside picking up tree branches, 
cleaned up the street. You know, everything was just kind of getting back to normal after the, the, the uh, typhoon hit. You know, a typhoon is a hurricane, but then a tropical that uh, part of the world. So same thing as a hurricane, but just different location in the world. But this city I was in, the name had no flooding. <laughs> the power was still on. <laughs> and people just went back to their normal day. It was like nothing happened. And it was the wildest experience. The wind was crazy. The water was crazy. If that would have happened in Detroit, we would still be recovering to this day. And that was like a month and a half ago. Like when it floods here in Detroit, it looks like those photos you see in National Geographic of like uh, the Dominican Republic and the Bahamas, like people wading through the water and like cars, people sitting on top of their cars on the freeway. And like, it's like Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> like people in the lives like waiting on help on top of the sedan like walking trying to climb up the side of the freeway just it's, it's craziness I remember the first time I saw it I was like that's here like <laughs> it's wild like you try to get home and you have to like take the long way around because you can't even drive down the main street. And it's just like nuts. During our filming, um, Desmond's home flooded. And so when you talk about what does it look like um, in terms of, and this is kind of what Brenda was saying, this used to be a thing that may may happen once every three years in the spring. Now we're seeing it happen every season, right? So every two, three months, you know, and people don't, you know, again, we've already complicated this notion of resilience. Like, why do we have to be resilient in the face of cities that have divested from communities to a point where they're not there, where the resources aren't available to either, um, you know, build the infrastructure to prevent this, this flooding or to have the resources? Because, you know, the person that Desmond was talking to, and I want you to talk about her, Desmond. Desmond was living in the Fox Creek neighborhood, which was a former canal back when um, Detroit was an indigenous um, before settler colonial, French settler colonials came in and um, colonized it. Um, and in that canal, that area is particularly like, you know, um, vulnerable to flooding. So Desmond, can you talk about um, the woman that you had, the advocate who basically stands, who's going down to city hall, you know, every week advocating for her neighbors um, and who talked about sometimes getting more of an answer out of somewhere like FEMA or being told to reach out to FEMA instead of her own local city government. Yeah, I was about to get to that. What was your neighbor's name? I see. Her name is mm-hmm. Tracy. Um, uh, the reason why I brought up uh, the Vietnam story is because of infrastructure. They had the infrastructure for such a thing to happen. And just to compare it to Detroit, uh, you know, you look at Vietnam as a third world country, you know, very poor area. And then you hear American city where infrastructure should be like the biggest thing, like nothing, like fix it, money, money. But in the neighborhood where I'm at, uh, where I was, Fox Creek, uh, we didn't really get support from our local government. Like Dream said, we had to def- depend on FEMA to uh to help us <laughs> um so tracy uh has been living over there 
uh, in the neighborhood. My um, the person in the film, the main person in the film, I shot way longer than me. But um, she actually owns two homes in the neighborhood, so she has a different investment in what happens when the flood. Like her ownership, her livelihood is being threatened. I was renting at an area, so I have an ownership of a place where it could just be taken away from you at any moment, just from it raining. It's a whole different feeling of fear that, uh, you know, I didn't experience that she had. Not only just like the home, but memories that she gets in the home. So she has been like fighting hard uh, through different community organizations and getting support from a few local politicians to come in um, and like just help bring FEMA in. And I can tell you from personal experience, my experience with FEMA, uh, they did end up helping me, but it was a struggle. They did not. <laughs> it was like, it was like you had, you had to like prove that you were in the flood. I don't, I don't know. Like my, my basin had eight, almost eight feet, five to eight feet of water. Like, um, I won't say eight feet. It's more like five feet of water. I'm exaggerating, but definitely five feet. <laughs> uh, five feet of water in my basement. And like, you see it, they sent someone out. And I was like, mm, we don't know. Like, huh? <laughs> so, like, it was a very struggle. It was like a week-long struggle of, like, me going up to the... They set up a camp at a local high school. And you had to go up there and, like, beg them almost to, like, hey, I got everything you asked for. Like, no, we need more. Come back next tomorrow. So, it was... Hmm. It's support out there, but they do not make it easy to get it <laughs> at all. No, one of the things that doesn't get talking, I mean, that's eerily similar to what we hear um, in so many places, what we heard in the Gulf Coast, uh, what we went through in the Gulf Coast, what we see in many other places. And it is the dehumanizing aspect you're talking about. Uh, it's one of the reasons why many people said, listen, it's, it's not, I'm glad we got a FEMA, but we also need a PEMA, a People's Emergent Management Agency that we can have on, on on ready to go dream as you're listening to both brenda and and desmond i i am struck that you know this story is a story that couldn't have been just isolated to this region it could be throughout this country and the world uh, what are you what are your thoughts on the storytelling aspect of this process and maybe what's what's could, could this could this conversation could this story be developed even further to tell more of these stories that are happening not only in that part of the world, and thank you for all those who are part of the film, and thank you for all those who put their stories into it, but, you know, throughout this country. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, and I, I, w I would love for um, Brenda to have the last word on this, but I think, you know, bringing back that history that she was talking about, you know, we often um, look at, you know, Robert Moses as kind of a supervillain, um, in terms of the way that he destroyed, you know, New York neighborhoods by design. 
um, with these freeways and the displacement and the things that Brenda was talking about. Um, that stuff started in the Midwest. Um, the first freeways were in Detroit, the Lodge Freeway, the 10. Obviously, it was connected to the um, auto industry. In fact, the auto industry lobbied hard, um, first in Detroit and then in other Midwestern cities, to, to not develop public um, transportation um, because, of course, they wanted to sell cars, um, freeways, uh, just as, as Brenda was talking about in Milwaukee. It, it went through and destroyed Black Bottom in Detroit. Um, which way before Motown was legendary for uh, Sunhouse uh, died in Detroit for the blues, right? Um, and then jazz, and then of course um, Motown. And so this displacement is historic. Um, it was, um, you know, it, it's a part of the history of Detroit um, and and the Midwest in general. You know, um, we have a neighborhood outside of Detroit, a suburb that went all the way to the Supreme Court to defend the covenants that they have on their home titles. Um, that keep these neighborhoods what they are, which is white and separate, and to have that kind of donut effect that, um, you know, that uh, Brenda was talking about. Um, so after the insurrections in the late '60s and early '70s, when white flight happened, um, you know, they they tried to create a donut effect where the the, the surrounding suburbs um, would have like money and 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 resources, and they would starve and divest from those cities in the center, which like Detroit, like Cleveland, like Gary, Indiana, like Milwaukee. But even as a future, you know, as those of us who are futurists and who are, or, you know, even survivalists, you know, you go on some of these and these sites tend to be heavily white supremacists and, and weird. And, <laughs> um, but you go on these sites that are about survival, right? They're all looking at Michigan. They're looking at the Great Lakes as an area um, you know, talking about buying all this area up in the Upper Peninsula, acres of land, because they're in their survivalist bunker mentality. They look at the Great Lakes as a place where um, there's a future, right? That if um, things go south, if, if if things get as bad as they possibly could, if, if the climate apocalypse happens, that this would be a place that would be um, a possibility for climate refugees, right? And right now, in this moment, you know. We are dealing with our own consequences and, you know, with Black folks on the front line. So that's why I centered it here. I know that this is happening in other places. In Michigan alone, um, I remember Whitmer, she was dealing with like having a kidnapping threat against her. And then <laughs> in the state, which was not, you know, populated by white, um, Black folks, there was a huge, you know, one in every 300 year flood that happened. Um so it's not just that Black people are being affected by this, but, you know, as a Black person, as a Black Midwesterner, I wanted to look at these city centers um, that historically have been divested from and were, you know, dealing with their own resilience practices and their own organizing amongst their communities to, um, you know, to fight back. Um, and and that's why we first went to these organizations, Um like again, you know, um, like Brenda's organization, and I'll I'll let her hopefully um, have the last word. But Milwaukee Water Commons again was, you know, one of the organizations that we talked to. I think I named, you know, in Cleveland who we were working with, and yeah, we went to those communities and said, "Who's the filmmaker that we should talk to?" And then they connected us to those folks. Well, I actually want to give Brenda the last word, but I want to make sure that folks know how to dream of Desmond. How, how can folks find the film or how can they get in contact? You know, how would you want them, people to reach you if they wanted to reach you? 
yeah, I need to put this. It, it's already online. It's on. Um, this was a, a grant. We were uh, the uh, Rockefeller Foundation. We got a grant from them. So it's on their site. And I need to actually put this on um, on our site on, on, you know, just online period. Um, but it already exists online. It's called Swollen. Um, and it's on the Rockefeller Center. But every organization, the three films that exist as a series, all of the three filmmakers have not permission, but the right to, you know, screen it themselves, um, put it on their own sites. The organizations that we're connected to can use it in any way they want. So there's no proprietary around it. But right now it exists on the Rockefeller Foundation page. Awesome. Desmond, how can folks find you? How, how can people reach out to you? Um, my Instagram. <laughs> it's pretty much the same place I exist online, really. Um, it's uh, extra decent on Instagram. There you go. Well, I appreciate that. And Brenda, I'm going to give you the last word here. So first, tell folks how they can find you. And I want you then to fi- finish up with dreams kind of analogy. And I just want to also give you this last word, like what, what makes you hopeful? Thank you, Rev. Um, I just want you to know, I did hear you speak here in Milwaukee, or actually you were in Madison and you were speaking at an environmental uh, event. So I, I was in the crowd. But it, but anyway, um, <laughs> I hope I did okay. that was a couple of years. I think <laughs> you did great. And it was before the, hip, the, the pandemic. And what I really appreciated was the melding of hip hop oh, with man. the environmental. Um, so that was the first time I had seen that. And so I was just like, oh. I love that. Appreciate that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, You can get in touch with me through two ways. Uh, My um, email is bcoley at milwaukeewatercommons.org. And you can also uh, look up our website, Milwaukee Water Commons, um, and and find me through that source as well. So I invite people to to take a look at our our website, which um, tries to sort of... um, give our viewpoint on, on many of these issues. Um, I think you were asking me to talk about what, get, what makes me hopeful. And I, I, I consider myself a, um, uh, what do I say? Um, optim, um, tragically optimistic. And in, in that way, I, I, I know what the realities are, but I'm optimistic for the future and our, and, and our, uh, ability to do something about it. Um, I, uh, my hope comes a lot through my relationships, my individual and community relationships, how we help one another. I have a rapid Republican that lives next door to me, but he helped me out when there was a flood. He, he, of course he had the generator and he hooked that generator up to my house. So even though we, we, uh, he came to my door and asked me, do you want me to do this? And I said, of course I do. And so in those relationships, um, those kinds of things make me hopeful, not necessarily in the structures that we have um, invented. Um, I think that there is, uh, you know, I'm a little unhappy um, uh, that the racial reckoning that happened with George Floyd's death has not gone far enough. And so I know we just have we had the beginnings of a movement. But it wasn't a complete movement. It looked like a movement. That's what Angela Davis said. It has the beginnings of a movement, but it was not, you know. So we have more things to do to support that um, that 
that work. So it means really for us to be involved. We can no longer trust the government to uh, look out for our interests. We have to be involved. We have to be our own um, advocates and we have to somewhat make it easier for people to participate. And that's what I try to do, make it easier so that we can figure out the innovation that is at the community level, because that's where the innovation is. Well, Dream Hampton, Desmond Love, and Brenda Coley, thank you all so much for being on The Coolest Show. And thank you all for just being y'all. Thank you all for just doing what y'all do. And keep on pushing. I know this work ain't easy, but just know if nobody told you today they love you, no Rev, Rev loves all of y'all. And uh, I am Rev here with your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.